0: Well, it's been uh, some time since we've met, and uh, I want to just give a quick update on next week, the entire staff is going to be in Louisville, Kentucky, so we're going to all be out of town, so there won't be a Wednesday night meeting next week, uh, just so you know, but it's been the last few weeks we've, we've been here or there and had a member meeting and things like that, and so we haven't been able to meet, but... Um, we are here tonight, and I just want to remind you of where we've been. We, we're looking at uh, defining the church, understanding what it is, how it functions, our place in it, uh, what we are to be as a church body. We are called out by God specifically for His glory. And He has unified us by virtue of the fact that Christ died once for all. And by doing so, He has united us in His body. Whether we are uh, different ethnicities, whether we are, come from different backgrounds, come from Christian households or, or atheistic households or wherever we come from, he has brought us together under his banner as Christian and made one new man. And Paul's explicit language back in Ephesians is uh, out of, whether Jew or Greek, which is everybody. He has basically nullified those two categories and made one new man and called them Christian. And so we are identified as such uh, by being covered under His blood. And that means that we are both a unified body and we're a diverse body, meaning that there is going to be the appearance of many differences within our congregation. Within any congregation, there's going to be lots of differences. And so then we've dealt a lot with there's a struggle between uh, as we grow as a church body of being both unified and also being okay that we're different and we have different thoughts and different opinions and different things like that. And so the question then is how do we as a church body come together and be one and united while yet we recognize that we are different and we do come from different backgrounds. And so we've dealt at length with some of those things in the leadership within the church and how elders and deacons and uh, all of those pieces fit together to help lead and, and direct the body into its uh, assignment to live for the glory of God. And then what your role is as members of the body of Christ and how you are there to safeguard the gospel. You're there to uh, define what a member is and what a member is not. And your responsibility is not only in the safeguarding of the gospel, but by doing so, you accept members into the body and you actually... Excommunicate members from the body in that, in as much as they demonstrate that they are not part of the body. That is your responsibility, as that is our responsibility as a church body, is what we're originally designed to do. So now we, we transition just a little bit into the last few things that we're going to be talking about throughout this series, um, where we we deal with a little bit uh, some things that really get down to sort of some practical things that we we all deal with, but then also we'll be transitioning into. Uh, who we are as a church, who this church really is. Um, we're Southern Baptist, as an example. And so we want to define what that means in a few weeks. We're going to be looking at what does it mean to be Southern Baptist? What, does, what even is a Southern Baptist? Uh, how is that different than a Baptist? And uh, why are there 1,500 different kinds of Baptists out there? And what, what do they all do? And, and then other denominations and things like that. So we want to help define who we are and, and those kinds of things. But tonight we want to talk about some Also, some other practical things about how we deal with discontentment. So we don't have a projector. We don't have TVs. We got nothing. All right? So you got a worksheet in front of you. And I'm just going to have to be really clear as to what that blank is. All right? Because I know I'm going to get questions because you put a blank in front of somebody and they want to fill it out. Right? which is a good thing, but I'm going to have to be really clear. You can ask, what was that blank? Uh, Because obviously I don't have a screen to put it up on. Okay, so the first things first, this first bullet point, discontentment is something that we all struggle with at one time or another, and discontentment with the church, that's the emphasis there was designed to say that's the blank, the church can be particularly difficult. Believe it or not, even the pastor struggles with discontentment. The pastor struggles with discontentment about his own church. And you might think, well, if you struggle with discontentment about your own church, why don't you just change it? Because sometimes discontentment is the people in his church, (laughs) right? Sometimes it's the things about the church. And and isn't that true for all of us? There's, There's nobody that's immune from, at one point or another, sitting in the pew... And going, I really hate fill-in-the-blank. That may be a person's name that goes in that blank. That may be a thing that goes on in the church body. That may be a particular way that we operate. That may be a particular thing somebody said from the pulpit, a pastor said from the pulpit, or something like that. It may be a host of things that you want to put in that blank, but the point is, at one point or another, we all feel discontentment. We all struggle with it. The question really is, how do we deal with it? And is it is it bad? Is it good? Wh- what, what do we actually do with it? How do we respond to the aspects of our church that are not necessarily maybe even sinful, but yet cause some measure of unhappiness? We, we don't have a, a screen, so there's an opportunity to be discontent because something has changed, and it's beyond our control, but it's just gone out on us. Um, and there's Little bulletins that are in front of you. The words are too small. We can't read those words. We need them to be bigger. So what are we supposed to do? Just mumble as we sing, right? There's always opportunities for discontentment. Yes, we're working on getting the words bigger. All right. Um, It wasn't a problem until everybody had to pick one up, and then all the old people were like, "I can't see this." (laughs) So we're like, "Okay, well, we got to make the words bigger." All all the people in the office that saw them were under forty. What's that? I'm just, you know, I'm just saying. You know, all the the people inside the office are under forty, and so we're, <laughs> really, you know, we're the only ones that are looking at. It. Uh, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> what was it? Is there grumbling in the already? <laughs> 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 already got some discontentment in the crowd. <laughs> do what? We can. Um, uh, so it happens, you know, in, in myriad of ways, there, 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 may be certain aspects of your life where you feel like the church is just not meeting your needs, or perhaps there's people that you feel like are not meeting your needs, or, um, maybe it's someone that's frustrating you for one reason or another, but the, the point is we're all going to deal with it at some point, and believe it or not, not all forms of discontentment are actually bad, um, some forms of discontentment are actually, are actually good, but if we respond to the discontentment that we find ourselves in, in a bad way, it actually reflects bad, not only on the local church, but if, if it's true what we said from the very beginning, that the church is here to demonstrate the glory of God to the nations, then what, what happens when the church de- wrestles with discontentment and it's not dealt with in a godly way, it reflects poorly, not just on the name of the church, but on the name of God himself. And that's, that's what's at stake. And that's really the problem. And that's the reason why it becomes a, a particular issue that needs to be dealt with in a certain way. So let's just define what I mean by discontentment, which is really a longing for something better than the present situation. All right? That's just a, as general as I could possibly make it. It's just struggling with something that, it, or, or longing for something that's better than the present situation. Now, there can be, Next blank here. Godly discontentment. And, and we see that even in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn. What brings about mourning, but a certain measure of discontentment, right? When you mourn, you're mourning over the state of, that the world is in. Who, who doesn't turn on the TV right now, especially, good grief, who doesn't turn on the TV and go, Man, this world is, uh, is broken is, is broken to pieces, and, you know, I don't know, and it's, it's one video after, you get on YouTube, oh goodness, get in a YouTube hole, and, and you're in a discontentment, uh, nightmare, really, where you, you just are tempted to just fear and despair over everything, every situation that we're we're in as a world, but, but there's a, a certain kind of godly discontentment to that, where you know this world that you're in is broken, and, and, Jesus is the only thing that can fix it, right? So that, that can produce a godly level of discontentment. But there can be also a sinful discontentment where we all of that turmoil, angst, whether it's the griping about the church or frustrations with the church that I mentioned before or whether it's about the world that we're in, that we refuse to trust the goodness of God and that spins us into a fear Um we, we don't extend gratitude for the things that God has provided for us. We, stop, we don't stop to recognize the things that God is doing in our lives uh, or that He has done in the world and praise Him for those things. And so instead we spin into fear, despair, or all kinds of other situations where we, um, where, where we you know, fail to trust the, the Lord. So even if our discontentment is godly, it can still produce in us an ungodly reaction to it, right? So even if we initially look at those YouTube videos or, or the news channel that we're watching or whatever it is, and we, and we despair over it, and we think, oh man, that's so terrible, but that spins us out into fear and mistrust, it's taking a godly discontentment that should be there and and making it an, a sinful discontentment. And, and so I want to go through some of these, what discontentment can actually lead to as we kind of think about Some of these situations that we find ourselves in, probably you can relate to many of these. Discontentment can lead to complaining and grumbling. I'm sure we've heard probably a lot of that (laughs) this past this past week. Just Jeremy preached on it uh, on Sunday. Did a fantastic job, by the way, uh, on Sunday uh, preaching from this passage. And um, so he says, uh, or uh, discontentment can lead to complaining and grumbling. Uh, you know, part of the way in which we witness to the world, as Jeremy talked about this past Sunday, part of the way we demonstrate the glory of God is that when they come in here, what they find is a content people that are happy with what the Lord has provided them. Even in spite of their poverty. This is what in the book of Philippians that we're studying on Sunday morning, Paul is actually going to end up getting to is especially in Philippians 4.13, which I think we've talked about a couple of times recently, especially in building blocks on Sunday morning, is, is we get to that passage in Philippians 4, verse 13. Do you remember it? I, I didn't put it down here on the, on the sheet because it just now came to mind. But uh, when, when he says, uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know the context that that passage is in? believe it or not, Paul's not applying for a job. He's also not standing up at the plate and confident that he can hit a home run. That's how we use it. We say, I can get that job. I can hit that home run. I can do that thing because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But in the context that Paul's talking about there, he says, he thanks the Philippian church for meeting his needs. And then he says, not that I need anything. I know how to be content, whether in riches or in poverty, in health or in poor health. I can be content whether I've got a lot or whether I've got nothing. Remember, this is a guy that's writing from prison, and the question might come back to him, how can you possibly be content in poverty? To which he responds, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens his point is that what makes us content, what makes me content in poverty, even if I have absolutely nothing, is that Christ is providing the strength for me to be content. So, what the people are supposed to see when they come from the outside is a people who are not characterized by grumbling and complaining, but are characterized by contentment and happiness because they can do all things through Christ who strengthens them. It testifies to the fact that Christ is actually strengthening them, right? It, it tells the world that Christ is giving them strength. It testifies to the gospel. So we see uh, Paul gives us the command in Philippians two fourteen and 15, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, against the backdrop of a world that grumbles and complains. You're set apart is different, because you don't. You're content whether you have a lot or you have no projection, uh, on the wall behind you, uh, or even if the words are too small. Uh, and then James tells us in, in James 5, 9, um, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judges standing at the door. Uh, th- so that grumbling and complaining on the flip side actually brings about a harsher judgment because didn't I save you from despair? Didn't I save you from the pit? What do you possibly have to gripe about? Didn't I meet every need that you had? What do you possibly have to gripe about? Um, I think probably more than, anythi- more than anyone, uh, Christians in America have the least to grumble and complain about. But it, f- it seems so easy to us. It seems so easy. You don't have to um, work to grumble and complain. Discontentment can lead to complaining and, and grumbling. It can also lead to discord. So that's the second blank there. When we're, uh, when, we're happy, when we're unhappy with something that we're tempted to talk about, uh, we, we often, it brings about criticism. We, we, you know, talk about it with other people. And, and really the purpose, when you stop to really think about what it is that we're doing, when we complain and grumble or when we talk about it with our friends, what we're really looking to do is rally an audience around us. Uh, An audience that supports us, that agrees with us. It it shouldn't come as any surprise that when you're around your friends and you grumble and complain, they are going to support you in that. You wouldn't have kept them around as friends if they didn't support you even when you think they're wrong, right? Or even when they think you're wrong. They they don't tell you that necessarily. They kind of... Believe it or not, we'd like to keep the peace. If you're going to grumble and complain about them, you're going to grumble and complain about me. I don't want you to grumble and complain about me. So they tell you what you want to hear. But all that does is end up sowing discord into them. And so now the discord has spread from you to other people. And the grumbling and complaining actually ends up just growing. Um, Galatians 5, 19 19 to 26. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality impurity sensuality idolatry sorcery enmity strife jealousy fits of anger ri- fits of anger rivalries dissensions divisions envy drunkenness orgies and things like these i warn you as i warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of god but the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control against such things there is no law and those who belong to christ jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Look at all the things that he puts in the same category together. Good grief, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Oh, also orgies. Those will seem like they belong in the same category. <coughs> Wouldn't we like to put them in different categories? Paul says, nope, all of them are works of the spirit, of the flesh, and they're evident to everyone. So they have no place in the the body. Third, discontentment can ignore the Lord's ongoing work. In my mind, this is is one of the more probably root issues, but one that we don't think about a lot. That, That level of discontentment ignores what the Lord is currently doing. Um, I find this with myself quite a bit. I, I, I talk, I've talked to some of you, prayed to some of you about this very thing. Uh, as, as a pastor, anytime in a church, people will ask you, they'll always ask you, how are things going at the church? My friends in Texas, ask, how are things going at the church? Friends here that don't aren't connected to the church. How are things going at the church? And I tell them all the time, it depends on where you look. Because it, it does. It depends on where you look. If you look in this area over here, I don't mean literally, I just mean you look in one area, you have a person over here who's convicted of sin and, and growing and and just very encouraging. You have this person who is, who is has grown immensely under the the Word or or maybe is beginning to disciple somebody else or or something. And then you look over here, and it it seems like you can never do anything right, right? And so it it depends on where you look. And this is what I've come to learn over the last five, five years is that there is always a temptation to focus on the area where you can do no right. Because when... I think it's part of Satan's kind of ploy to just pull pastors into that area of just despair. And that's what leads to some of the grumbling and complaining and the discord and the discontentment and all of those kinds of things is because your gaze is focused on all the things that are bad rather than actually turning to the things that the Lord is actually doing. And instead, choosing to focus on the things that that He is doing. That the Word is doing in people's lives. Where things are, are growing and changing and where disciples are being made, where, where people are coming to know Christ, and where co- deep conversations about the gospel are being had, and where rejoicing is, is being had, where changes of heart are taking place. It, it's much easier to look at these things, but that's where discontentment is, and that's where discord ends up growing, and grumbling and complaining all happen. And what happens is when we give ourselves to those, what we do is just shut ourselves off to the fact that the Lord is actually doing things, He is actually working. He actually, he actually does work in a congregation. He does work amongst his people. But it's those areas you've got to focus on and you've got to pour into. And as, as hard as that is, that's the necessity. But what, that's what it does, is when you, when you get into that period of discontentment, inevitably, inside a church, you're looking at the wrong things. And it's not as though it's in every church that there's not legitimate things to be frustrated about. That's, that's not the case. Of course, of course there is. But it's also that there are great things going on, too, and how should the people of God actually be characterized? Yeah. Absolutely. 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 I I do this as a parent. I I don't know why. I don't want to do this as a parent, but I do this as a parent. You look at your kids under a microscope, and you see everything they do. And I look at all the bad things, and I go, well, if, if they would just make these corrections, then we could eliminate some of those you know, bad things. Instead of then also looking at the amazing things that are, are going on and encouraging those things. I'm not saying there's not a place for discipline. Of course there is. Yes, of course there is. But, but it, it's 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 in every area of our life, whether it's parenting, whether it's a relationship with our family, whether it's you know whatever it is, or even inside the church body. There's always a temptation to look at everything that's gone wrong. Believe it or not, criticism is not a spiritual gift. It's not. It comes it comes by all of us naturally. And and it it is funny, like, if if you've got one gripe, I've got ten, right? I mean, like, everybody can point to things that are bad. Everyone can. The question is, can you actually find things that are praiseworthy? Can you find things that are good and worthy of encouragement? Or is everything bad all the time? Exactly. Yeah. You're 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 exactly right. We're read that again. <coughs> and and that's the heart of it: demanding more than he's ordained, refusing to trust God for his provision. The question is, is God at work right now? Whether it's in this church or whether it's in any church or or even in the world, is is God actually at work? Well, of course He is. And if that's the case, is He at work in your life? Okay, then everything that's put in front of you, He's given to you. So the question is, are you going to thank Him for it? Or are you going to be discontent over it? To thank Him for it, you have to actually recognize his ongoing work. No church has it all figured out. No pastor has it all figured out, believe me. And you might think they think they do, but I'm going to almost guarantee you they, they think they don't. Discontentment can strengthen the body as well, though. It does have an opportunity to produce a godly work. It can be a godly thing. Um... But it has to be responded to in a godly way, and it has to be uh, in a way that we're submitting to each other for the sake of Christ, doing the hard work of love. We can bring great glory to God. We can find contentment in the midst of discontentment, um, and it's something that we should actively be trying to learn. Um, again, Philippians 4, 11, 13. I thought I didn't put it down, but I did. Now, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So how do we actually get to the point where we take the discontented feeling that we have toward the church, and and instead of giving it to Satan actually using it for the Lord's intended purpose, which is to grow us and to magnify His glory through the body. The first is we've got to pray for God's mercy. Pray for God's mercy. That's the next blank there. Pray for God's mercy. Um, obviously, the Gospel tells us that we're unable to do anything by our own strength. But you have to understand that when discontentment comes, Satan's goal is to destroy you with bitterness, pride, and revenge. Period. Period. There is no good purpose that Satan has for your discontentment. So when it produces in you grumbling and complaining, when it produces in you discord that you're spreading amongst others, just know Satan is at that moment threshing you like wheat. That's a scary feeling, isn't it? It's a scary thought. Imagine what the disciples are feeling <coughs> Excuse me, as Jesus... Tells the disciples, Satan has asked to thresh you like wheat. And then turns to Peter, but I've prayed for you, Peter, that when you are restored, you'll strengthen your brothers. The scary part of that is that Satan was granted permission to thresh them like wheat. Isn't that the scary part of it? He doesn't say, but don't worry, Peter, I got your back. We're going we're to fight off the devil. Satan asked to have you so that he may thresh you like wheat. And God said yes. So, as terrifying as that is, you have to understand that as a church body, when you give in to that discontentment and sow discord and grumbling and complaining, that's the broader thing that's being accomplished there. There's a real enemy that we're facing And at that moment, he's having his way. He's having a field day. But it doesn't have to be that way. God's actually given you the ability to work and please him through his spirit that dwells within you, if in fact he does dwell within you. And so you must pray for God's mercy. Ask him to help you as you work through these things, as you you get over this stuff. Second, there's a requirement that you've got to examine your desires. You've got to confess and repent those desires that are sinful. Examine your desires. We, we often feel discontentment because we put our hope in circumstances rather than God, but we understand, we have to understand, circumstances change, and God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if there is a, a fight or a quarrel, what is its, what is its reason? For being there. Often, often, not always, but often, there are ungodly desires within you. Ah, I want my church to be something else. I want it to be more like that place down the street, or that place down the street, or that place down the street. I'd rather be much more like the like the kind of atmosphere that my friends have at their church. Instead of going, wait a minute, am I just being envious? Because it might be possible that. You're just struggling with envy, and you're dealing the same thing with that, that I deal with, that my kids deal with when they've had a birthday, and they immediately look to the thing that they're, or the Christmas, and they look to the thing that their sibling got, and they go, why didn't I get that, right? It's the same thing. We all deal with it. We just don't think about that is actually envy that we're struggling with, that we're dealing with. So examine our desires. This first starts with a prayer for God's mercy. Look, help me to identify these things in me that might be evil desires, might be sinful desires. Examine those desires and confess and repent those that are sinful. Um, And then it's possible that your grumbling and complaining or your, your discord or your discontentment might be because of someone else. See other believers the way God does. Third blank there. See other believers the way God does. As we grow in understanding of the depth of His grace to us, it should fill us with gratitude as we begin to realize, that person that I'm mad at, God sent His Son to die for. We really, really could stand to just think about that every time we're in the midst of an argument or a fight or just some place where we're mad at somebody for something stop and just think for a minute god sent his son to die for that person and i'm sitting here mad at them now i'm not saying they didn't do something that provokes you to anger i'm not saying that they don't need to be confronted about that in fact they do But what I am saying is, do we really have a right to to hold anger on the top of them? Of course we don't. If God doesn't, are you more just than God is? That's essentially what we're saying. I, I know you forgave them of their sin, but your level of justice is here, and mine is like here. Did you consider this offense that they did to me? Or we may be dealing with a a person who's not a Christian, who's done something to us that just provokes us to anger, and we just sit there and we stew in our anger. Have you thought? God's punishment for them is an eternity in hell. I know your standard of justice, giving them an eternity in hell, is here. But they need hell and my anger and wrath. Standard of justice is just a little bit stronger than the law. That's essentially what we're saying, but is that what we really want to be saying? I don't want to be caught dead saying that. Now, I often end up saying that, but I don't want to. So then, what do we do? First, we see, or we see people the way God see other believers the way God does. See, I would say even other non-believers the way God does. But last, speak in love. So it does need to be confronted. If there's somebody that's sinned against you, rather than sitting there and stewing in your anger, it needs to be something that's confronted, where you actually need to talk to them. But the way you do it is to speak in love. Share the specifics of your discontentment with those that are involved. Talk to the person directly. Talk constructively. Remember all those other things that I said? looking for all of the ways in which God is working in their life, identifying those, bringing those to the forefront, loving them because of the way God loves them, loving them because of the way God loved you, and then expressing in a constructive way the things that frustrate you, speak in love. Oh, yeah. 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 Vicky said when you have to look at yourself first and you have to examine your own sinful desires, that sort of changes your approach whenever you go to somebody else to talk about their sinful desires. Because, yeah, you've, you've just received forgiveness. The way, the way uh, Jesus even talks about this in both the, uh, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, uh, I think it's verse 14 and 15 maybe, where he, he says, uh, he, he mentions in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then he, he goes on, right? And then he comes back to that after the prayer's over. It's like he's, he said, this is how you pray. And then forgive us our treasure. And then he says, Amen. And then he tur- he turns to them and he goes, oh, Remember that line that I said back there, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin-, sin against us. If you don't do that, the Lord won't forgive you. And then he tells a parable later in Matthew 18, I think it's 21 to 35, if I remember right. He, he he's telling this parable of a man, of a man who owed a debt that's equivalent to like $15 billion. And the person he owes the debt to just forgives him. And he turns around, and a guy owes him a debt of what amounts to about $15,000. <coughs> and he has him strangled. And the original, guy, the original guy who forgave his debt said, Wait a second, I, gave you, I forgave you a debt of $15 billion. You turn around, and you strangle somebody over the measly little crumbs that they owe you? And he says, Neither will you, your Heavenly Father forgive you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart that a, that's a, really should cause us to think, if we examine our own desires and we see, hey, at the cross I have forgiveness, all right. And then you turn around and you strangle somebody for their sins against you. What have you just done? You've just reenacted the parable. So then the question becomes, can we ever leave a church? Well, you can already tell the, the boundary for leaving a church is way out there. In my estimation, I think in the Bible's estimation, is way out there. You've got a long way to walk before you ever get there. But it's not as though you never get there, right? There are times where you, you do get there. And let's, let's take a look at those. So um, I think it's pretty normal in today's society to have sort of a cavalier attitude about church membership that like what I belong to is, is basically, a like we've talked about, the a grocery store membership. And if they stop selling the the Vegetables like I like, then I can go down here where they sell fresher vegetables, and I can get better. I can get the vegetables fresher the way the more the way that I like them, and uh, and certainly I think that that's not a biblical way to think about church membership. Um, it's 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 a deeper commitment than that. But there are reasons to leave. One would be physical relocation. We see that happen actually in the scriptures where missionaries or people that are, are dislocated from the by bi- from the body. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla are dislocated from Rome uh, because of an edict that the Roman emperor put out where he kicked all the Jews out of Rome. He kicked everybody out of Rome, basically. And Aquila and Priscilla were caught up in that, and they had to move to a new city, and they began ministering in a new city. They, they began in a new church in a new city. You know, obviously, physical relocation happens to us quite frequently. Um, but he, here's the deal about physical relocation, and, I, and I, sometimes I, I'll say this, and, and it may, this is how seriously I take church membership, or I try to, anyway. Um, when people relocate, most often the first thought is, where can I find school that I'm going to go to for my graduate program or for whatever? Where can I find a, you know, job or whatever? Where can I find a, a house? I think our first thought should be, where can I find a good church where I can be spiritually fed? Then let me build my life around that. Now, we don't ever think that way, do we? It comes across as weird to think that way. But let me ask, what is the purpose of a church spiritually feeding you? How important is that in your life? A church that actually does have other believers that hold you accountable. As a church that, that preaches the word, first and foremost that edifies you through worship, convicts you of sin. That actually teaches you how to follow Christ. What level of importance is that in your life? It should be placed there. If that is the most important thing in your life. And if we would all agree that that is the most important thing in my life, that someone continue to to teach me the scriptures, then it should hold that place of prominence. When we think about even relocation, is there a good church in that area? Do I want to buy a house in that area? Well, I don't know. Is there a good church in that area? Or am I going to be driving fifty-five minutes just to get to a church that's preaching the Bible? It should influence a large degree of our decision. I can tell I haven't convinced some of you. Um, <laughs> there's other reasons, ministry opportunities. Uh, there are missionaries that relocate in Scripture. Uh, hitherto and yon that are sent out from churches that actually go and, and, uh, and are doing ministry abroad where they're really not going to be connected to the church that sent them anymore. Um, so ministry opportunities would be that second um, example. Now remember, these are examples that we're seeing in, in Scripture explicitly, um, but there, there are going to be some others. Um, discipline, church discipline. Uh, obviously that would be another reason to be disconnected from a church is the church actually removes you from membership. Um, and you're not part of that church any longer. Um, the last would be apostasy. So discipline would be that third blank. Apostasy would be another. The church has fallen into heresy, it is teaching heretical things. Prosperity gospel becomes the you know, main gospel here, or something like that. that. That would be a reason to leave and to take everyone that you can with you. I think by implication there are potentially some other reasons to leave the church, And among those might be the teaching from the pulpit is not only unbiblical, but it it begins to be tolerated by the people in, in the pew. It's sort of related to the apostasy, but as an example where it might not be necessarily heretical statements that are being said, it might be just refusing to teach the Bible, right? It's not necessarily maybe under the category of heresy, where they're actively teaching something false about Jesus, but the Bible's not being taught. Very topical, very psychological, maybe very philosophical, but hardly biblical. We don't open the Word, we don't read it, we don't look at the, what the words mean, we don't understand what they mean, and how they apply to our lives. Um, so the teaching is some, somewhat unbiblical. You maybe not call that unbiblical teaching as much as you would call that not Biblical teaching—I don't know—it's—it's it's not teaching at all, uh, or it's teaching something else um, uh, from the pulpit, and it's tolerated by the members. That's so a totally different thing. If the unbiblical teaching is not tolerated by the members, if the membership is growing to the point where they're—they're they're saying, "I don't think this is right. This isn't true. This isn't—isn't isn't right." Then that problem can still be rectified and corrected. In which case, you should stay and work to correct it. The other thing, another thing, would be the essential marks and works of the church are no longer being observed, such as ordinances, orthodoxy, evangelism. So again, the orthodoxy being the proper right belief, ordinances, baptism, the Lord's Supper is not being practiced at all. Um, evangelism, discipleship, biblical worship is not going on in there. Uh, things like that might be also a reason uh, to leave a church. So, but but then the question becomes, how do you leave? How do you actually walk out the door? And it, just because the church is doing these things doesn't mean it gives you carte blanche to just walk out the door, burn everything to the ground behind you. Um, Instead, communicate and seek counsel. Discuss your options with the church leadership. Let them know what's going on. This is, you know, anytime somebody comes to me and uh, wants to join our church, from another church, I typically ask them what the relationship with them and the previous church that they're coming from is like. And normally encourage them, look, I understand that people are going to leave churches for one reason or another. Either they're disgruntled about the way the the Bible is being communicated, that it's not being taught clearly, or maybe it's being taught in a wrong way. But the way you leave a church should be done biblically. There should be no bridges being burned along the way. And, look, if a pastor is not teaching the Word the way it's written on the page then maybe they don't know. I mean, have you ever thought about that? Maybe they don't know. Our assumption, your assumption, sometimes, in the pew may be, well, maybe we've gone to seminary, right? I guarantee you, 90% of what they learned in the Bible came before and after seminary. Okay? So, a lot of the stuff that they're teaching is stuff that they've picked up along the way. They may not realize heresy that's coming out of their mouth or false teaching that's coming out of their mouth and they need to be made aware of it if indeed they are your brother in Christ. And you may not know. But how do we confront them? Well, we go to them and and talk to them about it. Be prudent and discerning. Um, And second, be prudent and discerning. Don't make a decision based on anger or fear or resentment or pain but on the principles of God's Word. And don't turn everything into a doctrinal issue. Not everything is a doctrinal issue. Everybody disagrees on some interpretations of Scripture, but not every doctrinal disagreement is worth rushing to the door. Finally, seek God's will as revealed in His Word. Not as He sounds in your head or between your ears, or even as I have a stirring in my heart. What is God's How does God's word point you in the direction you need to go? Um, Look, I I think on the whole, we should opt to stay and contribute positively to the ministry that goes on in this church. It should be a, a covenant that you're making with each other. This is what I want to be as a member. This is what I want you to hold me to as a member of the church body. And because of that, if something goes awry or something's not quite the way I like it, first of all, I'm going to find the ways that God's working and encourage those as much as I possibly can. And if there's an area in the church that I think needs help or could change, I want to find a way that I can help fix it. Rather than sitting in my own discontentment, stirring discord, strife amongst the members, <coughs> I want to have a high view of membership. I want to have a high view of the local church. Why? Because it's what the Lord has done. This was God's choice. Is to build a local church to display His glory. So before we trash it, and before we think ill of it, and before we sow discord about it, and before we find ways of accusing it, let's remember the church already has an accuser. Position's been taken. It's been filled. You don't want it. So instead, let's think about what God has done here. That he has died for the people that are around you. Through his son. He's forgiven them. He's welcomed them to his table. Maybe, just maybe, our discontentment with them, maybe that can be buried too. Maybe it's even just a conversation. Or, hey, shocker. Maybe we just forget it. That's a thing we can do. We don't have to talk to everybody about everything. Maybe we can just go, eh, not that important. Sometimes it's just a night's sleep. Just a good, a good nap. <laughs> might help. Questions? Stepping stones, lily pads, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, yeah. Yeah. No. No, uh, I I agree with you. Uh, Shannon's comment was just, you know, that She's kind of getting a clearer picture of what the church actually is, but has not seen that to a large degree in churches that she's been a part of, or, or even just wherever. Um, and that either people church hop, they go from one place to another, or they, uh, the, the pastors themselves church hop. They, they kind of use one as a springboard to the next church and things like that. And I think that's right. I mean, I think maybe, maybe if I could address a question that I felt like was coming, which I don't know if that was coming or not, um, but how do we stop that? I mean, th- that would be like a, right? So, like, what do we actually do about that? And so, this is going to sound different than what I've taught so far. That We do have to hold our members loosely, okay, to some degree. In that, if a member comes to me and they say, I'm leaving the church. I mean, I'm going to talk to them about why. We're going to wrestle with some of those issues. And I might even respond to some of those issues, but if they're dead set on going, I can't make them stay. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna, yeah, hold on to their leg as they, as they go out the door. I mean, you know, they're, they're gonna go to another church, and they're gonna join it, and, and as long as they do that, I think we're okay. We can deal with that, Um, but I think, honestly, the way we do it is really for a couple things just off the top of my head. First of all, disciple people in the church body. Don't just assume that everybody's on the same page as you just because they're sitting next to you singing the same songs you're singing and listening to the same sermons that you're singing. Not everybody's on the same page. Get to know them and disciple them. It doesn't have to be, hey, I'm going to disciple you. I realize what kind of conversation that looks like where you sit somebody down and say, you're really immature and being an idiot and I want to come in and I'm going I'm to teach you the right way to, to think. Like, Obviously, that's weird. Um, but But... Talk to them about the scriptures. Hey, would you be willing to meet with me? And just, and just, let's read God's word together. Let's pray. Let's talk about what's going on in your life. I want to know more. And maybe it just starts even with just that. I want to know what's going on in your life. I want to get to know you. And through that, you can kind of find ways to leverage the gospel into their life. And say, maybe we should talk to that person about the things that are going on. And I'll, I'll sit with you if you want to talk with them about it, right? Like find ways to disciple, and what we find is when, when people are actually come along some, beside somebody and disciple them, get to know them, pour into their life, they're much less likely to just fly the coop at the first sign of trouble. They're much more likely to stay. If indeed they are a Christian, if God's working in their life, they're much more likely to stay because of your influence in their life. So that, That's one thing, obviously. Don't fly the coop yourself, right? I mean, I I said this at the members' meeting. It's difficult any time I see a member leave, any time. I don't care if all the conversations I had with them were negative entirely or if they were the best person I've ever met in my life or anyone in between, it's always difficult to watch members leave, especially when you know you're the problem. So you heard it here first. It's difficult. It's hard. It never gets easy. Ever. But I think a lot of it stems from just not taking church membership seriously and realizing what's actually happening when you join a church. When a church says, we think you're a Christian, and they baptize you or they accept you into membership. When you covenant with them, I want you to hold me accountable, I want to hold you accountable. When you submit to church discipline. Think about what you're inviting people into the most intimate aspects of your life. There's a lot that goes with that. There's a lot that you're asking people to do for you and that you're telling them you're going to do for them. So don't be that person. And honestly, we should understand that there are going to be people that go. But there's also going to be people that come. And for the ones that are here, if you just watch somebody leave and walk out the door, as we've done the last member meeting, we also saw somebody gone the last member meeting. So you can be discontented, and you can grumble, or you can start discipling the people that came. Again, you can look at this, or you can look at this. Depends on where you look. Other questions? Go ahead, Joe. Yeah, I, I would, I would hesitate just having seen what I've seen in ministry. Hesitate to say that's just their nature. I understand where you're coming from because I've felt that before and I've said that between my ears, right? <laughs> okay, I, 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 with the sentiment, I'm there with you, right? I get it. Um, but I have seen people radically change. I mean, radically change. Seemingly overnight, them change. I saw, I've seen a married couple where both of them were having affairs. One of them, in such a heinous way, that you would go, That's, there's another category than affair or adultery that that steps into. Come to repentance, forgive one another, and their marriage be restored in 13 weeks. I've seen it happen. So when you see that happen, it's hard to say, look, that's in your nature. I think it's in all of our nature. I mean, which one of us hasn't been discontented to the point where we're like, I think I just want to leave. All of us in this room. I'm not excluding myself. All of us. What keeps us here? I, I think with anyone, no one is beyond saving. I think it's in all of our nature to answer your question and to say, yeah, but then at the same time, I think we can also say, there is hope for literally everyone. And if we don't believe that, I don't, I don't know if what we're preaching. Right? I mean, that's what we have to believe. The gospel can change anyone. So, I think it's kind of a both and, you know. Right. Right. But that change comes through a holy confrontation where you sit down with them and you go, you're never content about anything. You never look at the positive of anything. You always point out the negative. The only thing people ever hear from you is negative things. Right? Like it, it has to be a confrontation like that. Until we have those, you know, you never know. I think people can change. Not people can change. The Lord changes people. I should say it that way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for an opportunity to come together and just feel frankly, openly, honestly with all of the things that go on in the church, m- but also ours. I pray for those that may be discontented in our congregation. We pray for them sometimes weekly on Tuesdays, and we certainly pray for them now. I- I'm sure we all know them. We all know who who some of them are, maybe. Um, I pray that you would help us to deal wisely with them, but to deal with them in a, in a godly way, in a way that glorifies you, and that Seeks to really preserve what you're doing in the church. and Help them to see it. Maybe confront them in, in sin, if that be the case. Or help them confront someone else's sin against them. So that they can get over it. I pray that you would help us to do that. That as a body, we would be united for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.